DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Good morning. Welcome in. Coming up this morning, Shane Young, NBA columnist, analyst for Forbes Sports, and Ben Anderson, Utah Jazz writer for KSLSports.com. Looking back at Game 1, getting you ready for Game 2. Jazz in the playoffs today, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Weekday, midday playoff games are just really weird. How many people can watch these? I mean, I know a lot of people working from home, but you're still, like, you got stuff going on. Fortunately, I have to watch watch for work, and Game 1 was wildly entertaining. All right, before we get to that, though, the impact of a college sports shutdown, Beth Lanier, longtime volleyball coach, uh, into her fourth decade now at the University of Utah. Uh, ton, ton of good teams and awards and all that. And I just think for with the WCC and the, and the Pac-12 shutting down, BYU women's soccer, Utah women's soccer, Utah women's volleyball, BYU women's volleyball, they've all been successful uh, to a pretty good level, and some even beyond that. NCAA tournaments, Sweet 16s, in some cases, Final Fours. These are four really good programs, and it all comes to a screeching halt. So it's a little different for every team, but there's also a lot of things they have in common. We want to talk to Beth about everything she's going through as uh, things shut down. Here's Beth Lanier with PK and I. Beth, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. You've been doing this a while, Beth. You got a, you got 31 years of experience. You've been very successful. Pac-12 Coach of the Year. I'm reading your bio right now. But have you ever seen anything like this? And what have you done that's prepared you to lead a team through this? Yeah, obviously, I've never seen anything like this. Um, I've I've told people in 30 years, I've I've never said I don't know so many times. Uh, it's just really hard to to face your athletes and and just tell them that we just don't have answers and you know we've just had to you know all the all the sports cliches have really kicked in um take it a day at a time control what you can control and i you know i I do think that athletes if, if anyone's prepared for something like this as hard as it is for for people in athletics because we're competitors i do think we're prepared for for this because we you know we face tough challenges all the time but this is this is a doozy um you know just a long long term challenge that we've got to keep adjusting to and it, it's been it's been hard not going to lie but um we are where we are and now you know i think we just have to regroup i gave my players 10 days off when we found out they've uh, been here for 2 months and uh phased in and we're uh, working out on their own. Of course, we can't. We don't have summer access to them in volleyball, but they they were they were grinding, and and then there was just such a big letdown that I just said, "Hey, take time. We'll see you when school starts." And everybody was happy to just try to you know figure out you know what's next, and and that's a big thing on our agenda as coaches is what's next. So even when things are going normal, the job is challenging to stay in a very competitive environment. You're in a competitive conference and all that. Now you throw this on there, all sorts of complications. What are you tackling as far as your biggest challenges right now? Yeah, you know, I think, first of all, I I think it was a big relief just to know that we weren't playing. You know, I think we all felt like it was heading down that road and, we are in complete agreement with it. Uh, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I couldn't have imagined Ben being on the road for four days, uh, you know, flying commercially and in airports. And um, and so once once we've got word that, you know, we, we in fact are not moving forward, 
now now it's a whole new challenge. I mean, we were just dealing with things day by day. I mean, every single day there were new interpretations of NCAA rules coming out, and every single day we were there were so many variables coming at us that we had to discuss. You know, what if this happens? What if this happens? So, you know, I'm I'm, I'm taking a week off and and just going to try to. Um, you know, just get ready for them to come back. And I, I really think it's going to take some creative leadership right now. I think, you know, I don't think we can do things the way we normally do them. I mean, I, we'll get back in the gym and we'll we'll do training. But the idea of, of practicing, you know, whether it's six months, if we have a spring season or, or a year without competitions is daunting. And so I think as coaches, we're going to have to find ways to – you know, creatively keep them engaged. Um, I think we're going to have to find ways to have a lot of fun because this is hard, heavy stuff. And gosh, playing sports is supposed to be fun at the end of the day. And so that's, those are the things I'm thinking about. Like, how are we going to make this, you know, just as good of opportunity and experience as we can have. And then, and then I do want to look at it as an opportunity. Um, you know, we, we have beach volleyball at the U and, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to explore what, you know, what does it look like for us to go out on the sand and play some volleyball as well? So, you know, we just have to change our mindset now, now that we've got a little bit of time. Beth Lanier, University of Utah women's volleyball coach, uh, joining us. So I'm curious what you do with, uh, athletes eligibility. And I guess you have to know about the spring season first, if they would move volleyball mm-hmm. to the spring, but you've got three seniors. I think one of them at least is a red shirt senior. You also have freshmen and I don't know if they took summer school classes or would they maybe mm-hmm. delay starting their clock by not going to school for a semester. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's all kinds of things to consider. Yeah, that's the that's what we deal with every single day, all these variables. In fact, I have a call with Kate Sharper, our compliance person, right after this. Um, and I just I told her I need an hour of your time. <laughs> so I have to go through all these scenarios with you. Um, but, you know, basically everybody's going to get a red shirt this year if we don't play in the spring. If, you know, every everyone, you know, if you don't play a game, you get an automatic red shirt. Um, we have questions about kids that have already redshirted. Do they get a six year? Um, I believe they do. Um, so I don't. I don't think eligibility is going to be the bigger issue. The bigger issue. The biggest issue. The bigger issue is going to be the scholarship situation. Um, you know, we've got to do some management of that because we're just going to have all of a sudden a bunch of fifth year players down the road. Now, I. I I do suspect that they would, if, if we don't play in the spring, if we play in the spring, you know, there's not going to be that many um, things to, to adjust. But if we wait to the fall, I, I do believe that they will give us, the, you know, what they're calling super senior scholarships um, to the, the seniors that want to come back. And, I mean, that was the precedent that was set for the spring athletes. And, boy, I'd be surprised if that didn't happen, and that's what I'm hearing. And so – for next year, it's it's okay, you know. We'll have the scholarships, and you know we have two senior All Americans returning. Um, I've had a lot of peers reach out to me and you know kind of give me their condolences because we were really ready and geared to have a great year. <clears throat> but uh, both my all, well, you know, my seniors are planning on coming back. We've we've discussed that, and so I think we're set there. But it, and then it's it's down the road where you have to go. Okay, well, what now is the situation with our with our scholarship distribution and 
Uh, there's going to be some challenges. We have to work through it. Lots of conversations. Uh, I don't know what exactly it's going to look like yet, but, but those are the conversations that we're having. So we heard with football as far as the spring, well, if you had a spring season, then surely you couldn't go into the next season on time because the body needs to recuperate and all that. How will that work for your sport if you had a spring season as far as then the fall a year from now being able to go in on a regularly scheduled time clock? Yeah, Mark Harlan called me and asked me that specific question. And, um, you know, I – I don't think it'll be easy. Um, yeah, I told them I think we're just tougher than the football players, so I think no we question. can probably do it. <laughs> you know, it, it won't be easy. You know, it's it's a grind on the players' bodies. Yeah, you know, we're not we're not hitting each other, but we're throwing our bodies on the on the hardwood floor, and and we're jumping. You know, 150 times, 150 to you know 200 times every day. Um, so I think I think that's a problem. I think that's an issue. I, you know, I. I don't know how we'll manage that. Again, something we've never done before. I, we have great people at the U. I, I have what I call the volleyball performance team, and we have uh, you know just a lot of really smart people that deal with performance, and including you know Ernie Reimer, he's a sports scientist, and our strength coaches and our trainers, and and you know we're we we get pretty specific on our training based on based on data and based on science, so. You know, we count jumps every single day. We know what their workload is. So we'll definitely have to manage that. And then, you know, look at science. Look at look at what, you know, if there's any precedence for stuff like that and, and dig in and, you know, figure it out. If that's what they tell us we have to do, we'll just have to figure it out. Bethel Lanier joining us, University of Utah women's volleyball coach. So recruiting gets impacted by this, too, and I assume that volleyball is a lot like basketball and that you're evaluating athletes a lot more on their, on their club than you are on their high school, and I'm wondering how much that club scene got has been disrupted and what you've been able to do. Yeah, we basically, you know, can't do anything. Um, I, I'll tell you what we can do. We can watch a lot of video, and it's been really interesting watching the club, the club world and, and high school now, too, you know, they're, those coaches are getting creative and, and they're finding ways to stream. Um, you know, they're still playing, right? And so they're finding ways to stream their practices and they're getting video to us. Um, and so that's, you know, I think this is going to change recruiting in some ways. You know, I think, you know, I don't think we've always done recruiting in a very efficient way at all. And so I, I think there's some takeaways that we can, you know, garner from this situation. And one of them is going to be a little bit more of, of online streaming evaluation type stuff. And then the other thing is, is we've actually, you know, in terms of recruiting, in some ways it's been a little bit better. Um, we've had great conversations with players over Zooms, and it's like we're doing a home visit every day. You know, we're, we're going into their home, and mom and dad are behind them, and we're getting to know them. And, you know, we just have a little more time to do that. So that's that's been a positive. But, um, you know, it's always scary to – try to recruit off of video obviously you you want to see players in person and so that's been a challenge uh, but we're moving forward with our recruiting and we've had success during this time and I think like I said I think there's some positives to take to take from what we're learning through this situation 
So Mark Harlan on his Zoom call the other day estimated a loss of 50 to $60 million because of this situation. <laughs> Do you anticipate some type of ramifications for your program financially? Well, I'm, you know, if my phone shows up with a phone call from Mark or Kyle Brennan right now, you know, I'm, I'm going to know what's coming, you know, that something's coming. I, yeah, listen, Mark was very honest and very transparent with the athletic department. We had an entire athletic department Zoom, and he said everybody's going to be affected by this. There's not, you know, including him, and there's not going to be, you know, one person that, that isn't affected. So, you know, I I feel like, I don't know, I, I you know, I can't speak to the numbers. It's not my area. Mark has shared with us that he, you know, feels like we're in as good a position as we could be in maybe compared to some other schools but yeah it's it's going to be tough um you know I, I'll, I'll give a little shout out to you know dr chris hill he he did a great job while he was here he you know he i i couldn't get as much money from him as i have you know always wanted but he did a nice job of 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 you know budget management so we'll see yeah it's going to be a huge loss um I don't know what to expect for the volleyball program right now. I'm I'm waiting to hear, as every other coach and every other employee of the athletics department is. I know I know it's it's going to be tight. It's going to be for sure tightening things. You know, hey, we we were living the good life. You know, we were, yeah, we were. Um, you know, I think all the Power Five programs were <clears throat> feeling that. You know, we had what we needed, and we were, you know, doing what we needed to do, and. Excuse me. Are there areas that we can we can cut back and, and be more diligent with our budget? Yeah, for sure. And we're looking at those kind of things, and we're finding them. And but how big a, big of a hit it's going to be, we're not sure yet. Beth Lanier, Utah women's volleyball coach, joining us. I'm curious as you talk to coaches around the country. Uh, you're in a Power Five league. So you're in a different spot, but around the country, is volleyball a sport that's going to be impacted, or do you think we'll see cuts in sports and there'll be other sports? Do you get any sense of mm-hmm. what you hear from other coaches? Well, it's interesting. I actually just had a, a long conversation with our executive director of our coaches association, uh, Kathy DeBoer at the ABCA, and you know she shared with me that you know the non-power five schools and, and non-football schools certainly are not feeling you know, the disruption that we're feeling because they just weren't as dependent on their football program as obviously we are. So I don't know. I, you know, we, like we discussed, I I don't think any athletic director got into this to, you know, to cut sports and to, you know, cut livelihood. So I, you know, I I have to believe that people are going to do whatever they can. And I, I, I really hope there's not mass cuts of, of other sports because, you know, the other sports don't count as, don't cost as much, you know? I mean, where do big cuts have to come from? I don't know, but um, I don't think this is going to be a situation where, you know, you can nickel and dime this. So, you know, you know, where, whether it's borrowing or, or, or what, I, I can't answer that, but um it was an interesting conversation listening to her talk about, you know, the non-football schools, and 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 they're just going to ride it out and maybe be in a little better situation, mm. or not better not than now, but maybe not get you know hit quite as as much. So you passed the thirty-year mark. My money's on you passing the forty-year mark. <laughs> 
Oh, you think so? Well, we'll see. We'll see. You know, hey, Elaine Michaelis did it many years ago down at That's BYU. Why I, was, and, I was thinking of her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can't even imagine it. But, uh, no, yeah, I'm still going strong. I, I don't think about it very much. Um, Russ Rose, uh, you know, he's at Penn State Volleyball, uh, traditional powerhouse, and he's won a number of um, – national championships and he's always checking in he's always going you you going to keep up with me and I'm like I'm I'm right behind you Russ so uh still going strong and this is uh like I said it's been a big challenge but it's going to be interesting to to work our way out of it it's it's uh it's uh, I'm trying to change my mindset let's put it that way you know we like I said we've just been in the day-to-day grind of of tough stuff and I'm going to take a little bit of time and try to figure out, you know, what's the opportunity here and, um, you know, how to creatively come out of that. And it's, it's a new challenge for me. So I'm not looking forward to it, but I'm going to try to approach it from that perspective. Well, Coach, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for joining us and uh, good luck with whatever the future throws at you when you see a certain number on your cell phone. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Appreciate it. Keep, yeah, we'll we'll just keep you know, taking it day by day. Uh, sports cliches are alive and well, but um, I think that's our best way to approach it. So thanks, you guys. Appreciate you. There's Beth Lanier, women's volleyball coach at the University of Utah, and I really do think that's representative of the Utes and the Cougars, women's soccer, women's volleyball. Uh, those programs have been very good, and those fall sports aren't happening. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Ben Anderson and Shane Young getting you ready for game two of the playoffs stay with us take the zone with you wherever you go let's go download the all-new zone sports network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show from salt lake to shanghai provo to portugal or ogden to oslo wherever you go we'll tag along let's go download the new zone app by searching zone sports network wherever you shop for apps it's the zone sports network app from 97.5 1280 the zone and the zone sports network good morning dj and pk it's 97.5 and 1280 the zone shane young nba columnist and analyst for forbes sports joined us in the second half of yesterday's show look back at game one get us ready for game two Here's Shane and his thoughts on the Jazz and the Nuggets. Shane, good morning. Good morning, guys. How about you? How are you doing? Good. Well, we just had a really entertaining NBA playoff game. Obviously, the wrong team won. But aside from that, <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a really good game. It was really entertaining. Back and forth. And obviously, uh, Donovan Mitchell impressed everybody with 57 points in the overtime game. But I'm curious, is there one portion of that that stood out to you? Is there something there specifically that really caught your eye in that performance by Donovan? Oh, absolutely. We all know Donovan is capable of these outbursts. I mean, he, you know, his rookie year burst onto the scene in that Rocket series and, and really all year that rookie year and, and was impressive. Um, but what stood out to me last night or yesterday, I should say, in the afternoon game was just how shifty he was in the pick and roll. I think one thing that he's really improved on and, and kind of uh, enhanced in his game is the ability to get all the way to the rim and the the patience in the pick and roll after Rudy Gobert screens, after Joe Ingles screens, or, you know, whatever the case was, he wasn't settling for the jump shots. Um, he did take 15 threes, but he wasn't settling all, all game. He 
got to the rim quite a bit, got into the floater range, um, really, really put his imprint on the game. And I, just I, to me, I think seeing him process the defense, seeing him break down what's happening in, in real time is definitely an improvement from the last couple of years. And it's a funny thing, like, I went to University of Louisville with Donovan. I was in one class with him. And seeing him then, I did not even expect this to be in in the realm of possibility. I didn't think anything that he is doing now would be possible in his game. And, boy, he's proven a lot of us wrong. I'm wondering if you've seen a difference since they've been in the bubble. Now, we obsess about the Jazz, and so we watch them at a high level in everything that they do. We dissect inside and out. But to me... He's been a different player since he's been down there. Oh, you're totally spot on there. And I think one thing that he decided, I need to pick up on this or I need to uh, do a little bit better job is finding Rudy. And although although Gobert only had 11 attempts last night, he was just really, really effective. And I think his, Donovan's passing ability, it, that's been on display a lot in the bubble. I think ever since the scrimmage has started, he has been doing a really good job of finding his shooters, finding the role men, and just in general, I think the game has slowed down for Donovan. You're, you're totally right on that. Since he got down there, uh, things are happening in slow motion for him. It's not it's not this rushed. Uh, it, every possession is not rushed like it was feeling prior to arriving in the bubble and even last year. I think, I think Donovan had a down year in general this year to me, especially on defense, but but he has totally picked that up since July 30th. Shane Young, NBA columnist and analyst for Forbes Sports, join us. The one thing we've had explained to us here on this show is that this four-month stop while they figured out you know, how to play basketball in the COVID era and how to do the bubble and all that was essentially an offseason for players. That while the coaches... And the players couldn't have practices, you know, you can still have video sessions. You can still go over stuff. A few guys had access to gyms and could do some one-on-one work. Probably more guys had access than we know, whether it was a high school gym or a church gym or what. You know, the one way or another, they found a way around it. But that the video work and all that kind of stuff, the guys, rookies are second-year guys, second-year guys are third-year guys. Do you buy that? Is that why we're seeing guys like whether it's Porter making a leap forward or Donovan making a leap forward? You know, I kind of do. Um, I'm, I'm typically covering the Clippers throughout this playoff run, and one thing that uh, was said or has been said on, on the media availability calls is how much time they have to really dissect stuff. I mean, Doc Rivers was even saying, like, normally they don't have practice time like this throughout, throughout the season with the amount of back-to-backs, and, and I think road traveling is a big thing. And now since you're eliminating, eliminating all of the uh, airport, uh, all, the, all the airport stuff, taking the buses to and from the arenas, from the hotels, um, you're eliminating all of that. So that is just five or six extra hours of, of time to dig into some film study or just talk to your assistant coaches. And I think that is something that goes – unnoticed as well or not recognized is just how much time these superstars and these young players, Donovan included, Michael Porter Jr. included, spend with their assistant coaches. And it's not always the head coach, not always the the main guy. I mean, sometimes they'll they'll just be sitting on the sidelines or or sitting in their room on a laptop um, breaking down the last game or the last few games that they've seen of their opponent. So I I think that that has been a real – 
uh, it's been a real big positive for this bubble situation. And who knows how next year is going to be. Next year we might be back to normal. I kind of doubt it. I think we might. It, it's still up in the air. So I think these players are, and, and these coaches especially are loving the extra time to really talk to their guys, uh, talk to their team, and uh, hone in on fixing you know, little things here and there. And, and that's how you win playoff games. Playoff games are won on the margins. They're not – they're not one um, – typically you're not going to see this big improvement from a player in the playoffs. But it's going to be something small that they add into their game, and that's where the film study definitely comes into play. I think most of us, me included, recognizes the Clippers and Lakers as favorites to get out of the West. Can you put Denver in that category to any degree? I don't think you can. Um, I know a lot of Denver folks are going to be coming at me for that one, but I – I don't. I don't think you can because when it comes down to it, they have to go through with the Clippers if they want to get to the conference finals. And still, to this day, they don't have anyone that can handle a Paul George or a Kawhi Leonard. I mean, you can. Jeremy Grant does a good job. Michael Porter Jr. has the size, but as we saw, um, I think as we saw in that in that game one yesterday, like. The Jazz attacked Michael Porter Jr. in pick and roll quite a bit, and and Michael Malone took him off the floor because of it. Um, He was getting roasted, and and Denver was giving up a lot of points per possession whenever Mitchell and Gobert attacked Porter Jr. So um, I I don't think that that team can hold a candle to the Clippers, and that you know that's not such a bad thing. Whenever you consider if Denver is the third best team in the West. Obviously, Houston and, and, and other teams have uh, have a nitpick there. But if Denver is the third-best team in the West, not much you can do whenever the two teams in front of you are in the biggest market with the biggest um, you know, gravitational pull in L.A. Like, it, Denver can really take pride in that, and they just have to, they have to wait it out. They have to hope that you know, the Lakers just aren't uh, – they have to hope LeBron takes a step back next year uh, for the Lakers. They have to hope that the Clippers – have some internal stuff going on. So I think if Denver is just right there in third, there's not much you can do about that. Isn't that bad for the league in the long run? That ballpark two-thirds, I mean, you can argue half or three-quarters or whatever, but ballpark two-thirds of the league is not in a place that you would think is ever going to have the gravitational pull to get superstars. And there are some teams that win through the draft but most championships yeah. are won by acquiring free agency stays. You don't win with young guys, and by the time you're 30 and ready to win, you've been an unrestricted free agent. How bad is that for the league in the long run, you think? I think it's bad for the diehard fans. I don't, I don't necessarily think the casual fans that just love basketball are going to really care. Um, but then you see, like, obviously it, it is a bad situation when you talk about, like, Carl Towns is in Minnesota. That's not, that's not ever going to be a really deep competitive team. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the draft. I mean, it takes Utah getting Gobert and Mitchell, and that's how they have to build. You know, no real um, free agency. Uh, there, there, the free agency has not been a pull that they've been successful in. And then Denver. I think Denver is the homegrown team that they're just they're expecting all their guys. Um, without obviously, Paul Millsap was uh, not homegrown there, but I mean, they they're just banking on their player development. So yeah, it, I do agree. It's not it's not the greatest look because you're always going to have the California teams. You're always going to have, um, you know, even Miami. Uh, they with Jimmy Butler now signing there. It's 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 something where the big markets are always going to be 
out in front. It's been that way for the last 40 or 50 years. I mean, you know, Lakers-Celtics. Um, that's just how that, – that's the biggest rivalry in the NBA NBA history. So uh, I'm, I don't really expect that to change. And is it a problem? Yeah, to, to a lot of us that, that really love this league and care about the sport so much. But I think just the average viewer, they're going to love basketball no matter what. That's just how I view it. How big of a break did the Clippers get with the Porzingis ejection? <laughs> it was huge. Um, I, I I am not one that typically says if this guy would have been uh, not not ejected or if this guy would have been healthy, like then the game would have been different. But the game might have ended a, a little bit different differently, or the second half would have started differently because the Mavericks lost all rhythm there, and they still made it competitive. But uh, the ejection was a was a bad one. Not not necessarily the ejection just the second technical foul like the the refs have to know just to let things blow over and they have to know in the back of their head okay Porzingis already has a technical so let's let's just kind of give them some leeway I'm not asking for you know the special treatment but just some some leeway uh not give it to them right off the bat so hey but you got to credit Marcus Morris for causing a little bit of ruckus and uh he probably knew what he was up to there so the Clippers just uh, kind of outsmarted Dallas last night, and Luka Doncic. <laughs> I, I swear, the, the fact that Luka Doncic is twenty one or twenty, I think he's twenty one years old, and he's doing this type of damage in the playoffs, uh, four years older than me. I, I, I don't understand how it's possible. So, hey, uh, hopefully the rest of the series is really fun, and we have no other scuffles. Do you look back and wonder how the heck anybody passed on Luka Doncic? It seems incredibly <laughs> obvious. I mean, we heard, we didn't see a lot of him, but we heard from people who did, this guy is unbelievable, and he came right out of the gate, and he was unbelievable, which makes me think, well, if you scouted him, you would have seen that. It was... Oh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily blame Phoenix, because Devin Booker was going to be a, a ball-handling guard that's going to have a high usage rate, and they really wanted to get... The, the, I'm not going to say they're Kobe and Shaq, but they wanted to get that parallel set up with Kobe and Shaq, and that's Booker and Aiton. So that that is understandable to some degree. But, yeah, you do wonder, like, what, what would Booker look like next to Luka Doncic? That would be just the, one of the sickest backcourts we've ever seen. And then you think, oh, Sacramento, uh, what did they say? Marvin Bagley third. So that's a horrible, horrible pick in retrospect considering Bagley can't even stay on the floor. He can't stay healthy. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it is, it's remarkable that they that the Kings decided, oh, we're just going to pass on this guy because we haven't seen a lot of tape or or uh, he hasn't played college basketball, so he, he might not be ready. That that was completely bogus in, in the time. How much time does Harrell need to get ready to go for the Clippers because obviously they'll need more of him down the line? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Um, I'm curious what Doc Rivers' plan is for him. He played 15 minutes last night. Didn't look too bad, but didn't look too good either. Wasn't really running as hard as he can. Um, his conditioning might not be where it needs to be. I would say probably three or four games, um, and that's and that seems wild, doesn't it? Because hey, if it was just you or me and we were uh, playing for the first time in months, you know, I think Montrez hasn't played since March 10th. We would need a full summer to get to get back into shape and get to get going. But for these professional athletes, I don't think it takes too long. I'm not sure. Maybe you have a different opinion on that. 
What is going to happen with Philadelphia? They're going to get a little bit of a pass in the playoffs this year because obviously they don't have Simmons, but they had one of the weirdest home road splits going. They got high expectations and, you know, they're not top three in the East. Where, where are they going? It's a good question. And uh, I'm wondering what uh, you all think of Philly's roster construction, but I, I don't. I don't think that they – I don't think their future is that great. Um, you know, they, they have a lot of money tied up in Al Horford and Tobias Harris. Tobias has looked good at times, but still, man, that's, that's a lot of money to be paying for guys that are underperforming, both of those guys, uh, Harrison and Horford, underperforming. And, uh, you know, contrary to popular belief, I think this series is actually going to be competitive. I picked Boston in six over Philly. And last night's game looked kind of like what I thought we would see is Philly's not just going to back down. Without Ben Simmons on the floor, they have a lot more shooting, a lot more spacing, can do a lot more stuff offensively. It's just they cannot they cannot contain uh, Jason Tatum in the full court, in the half court, or anything. And and whenever you start letting Boston fire up threes with, with uh, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and Kemba Walker, it, it's a nightmare. So uh, the future is probably not too bright for Philly. Um, still going to be a good second round team uh, as long as they have the, the talent they have. But the, as we're seeing, the Eastern Conference is actually really good right now. The Eastern Conference is picking up. Shane, we appreciate the time. Thanks for giving us a few minutes here and enjoy the playoffs. Thanks. Anytime, DJ BJ. There's Shane Young, NBA columnist and analyst for Forbes Sports. When we come back, Ben Anderson, KSLSports.com, and you've heard him on the pre-half and post-game shows here on Jazz Broadcast. We'll get his thoughts on Donovan Mitchell's 57-point explosion. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Ben Anderson, Utah Jazz writer for KSLSports.com, joining us uh, late in yesterday's show in the final hour. His thoughts on Game 1 help you get ready for Game 2 today at 2 o'clock. Here's Ben. DJ and PK is brought to you by WCF Insurance, reminding you to be careful out there. Time to bring in Ben Anderson, Utah Jazz writer for KSLSports.com. Ben, good morning. Howdy, guys. So, a lot of cool things happened in that playoff game. Donovan Mitchell going for 57, overtime, the shootout down the stretch, the way Mitchell turned it on in the second quarter when the Jazz had a chance to get blown out after he'd had a bad first quarter, and he made sure that they were right there and slugging it out in the second quarter and setting the tone. But if you had to pick one thing, what's really stuck with you out of that game? Well, I mean, the 57 points are going to last for probably I, – I mean, I, I don't know if we're at a point where it's going to be a number that doesn't get reached again. I mean, clearly we see guys like Damian Lillard who will hit 50 points eight times in a season and can turn it on and could easily, honestly, get to 57 against this Lakers team who doesn't have a great perimeter defender right now. So I think it's significant. I think that's the number we're going to see because it's so hard to reach. I don't think it's going to be number three on this list the way right now it's Michael Jordan and Elgin Baylor and Charles Barkley and, and Will Chamberlain. I don't think we're going to see that last as long as those numbers have since 1986. How much better have you seen Mitchell get here in the last couple of weeks? 
I think he's healthy. I mean, I think that's really the majority of what it is. I think late in the uh, before the suspension of the NBA season, I think his legs look tired. I mean, the double clutch dunk that he had last night was just not something I think Jazz fans had seen for a long time. The way he's tried to jump for some putback dunks. You remember early in his career against the Lakers when he kind of had that big breakout moment with the dunk and then the steal and the three point shot. He. He hadn't done that in February, and I don't know if it's All-Star game. I don't know if it was last summer he was still working and just kind of hasn't had time off because he went and played in Australia and then went and played in China. I don't know if he's had four months off from basketball, and I'm sure it's not the four months he wanted to have off, but I think he's just come back and is fresh, and I think he's just such a different player when he's fresh, which is so much of why the Jazz have worked to put players around him that can limit his load management. It also seems like for a lot of NBA players, that was the offseason. But in a normal offseason, you know, they get their own time away from coaches. This was an offseason where coaches could still, you know, talk with them about video, breakdown situations and all that kind of stuff. You know, work on the, on the, uh, the basketball IQ, for lack of a better phrase. And that seems to be paying off for multiple players. We've had multiple guests on who said, hey, you know, this is how the Clippers use the time. Uh, you know, clearly in, uh, in Denver, they got a young star on the rise and it benefited him. The Jazz have a young team that benefits a guy they got here in their third year. It seems like it's kind of a one-off. I don't know that it's going to happen again, but it seems like a lot of guys benefited from it. Yeah, I mean, and maybe specifically with young guys, I was curious how this was going to look if we were going to have rookies who came back and looked like sophomores and sophomores who came back and looked like third-year players and if they would have this weird jump. And maybe that's what Donovan Mitchell is doing right now. Maybe he is having this enormous jump. But I think the evidence against that is that you're having Mike Conley play significantly better, and maybe that's just the absence of a guy like Boyan Bogdanovich. But it does seem like, whether it's freshness, whether it was the ability to re, just kind of get your mind back in the game in a different way, knowing you, you have a sprint for one of the first times in your life and not a marathon, it's the NBA season that the playoffs end after. Maybe that's why we're seeing this significantly higher level of play. But I do think there's certainly something about the break and the way the players kind of step back mid-season and come back and look at what worked well and then fix it on this back end that has produced, honestly, I think really good basketball. And also, maybe it's just the, the lack of pressure of having fans in the arena because look at shot making late in games. It looks like shot making in a scrimmage when guys are running around and not playing a lot of defense. And they are still playing defense and they're hitting these crazy shots. I wonder if with less pressure of having fans there and every play feeling like it hangs on uh, in the balance because there's not that loud crowd noise, if we're seeing better performances. And that goes back to you know the, the Dallas-Portland game where those two were just exchanging unbelievable shots late and Damian Lillard going for 40 and 50 and 60. I, I wonder if some of that is what we're seeing. From the Jazz perspective, how much can you rationalize, hey, we had them right there, we let it slip away on a night in which they shot 50% from three. And so they're not going to do that that much, so we're in a good spot. I think you can do part of that. It's hard to say that and then also say, not say, well, Donovan Mitchell had 57 and you still didn't win that game. And I'm sure Denver will look at that and say, as long as we don't let him go off for 57, no one else on that roster is going to beat you offensively. So I think that's that's kind of a two-way street. But I think in the sense for the Jazz, there's certainly a lot to take from that that worked. And, you know, even Jamal Murray's not going to go 8 for 10 over the last eight minutes, including at one point over a two-minute stretch. He was accountable for 15 points from the 313 mark to the one-minute mark of the fourth quarter. 
that's not going to happen again. So you don't have to worry about that. They're not going to go four for four in overtime from the three-point line. I don't think you have to worry about that as much. And it is a make-or-miss league, as cliche and as annoying as that saying is. They made, and the Jazz didn't make enough last night, whether that was Jordan Clarkson and George Niang and Royce O'Neal combining to go three of 16 from the three-point line. Uh, they just didn't get enough shots to fall when they needed them, and, and, and that was an issue. And the problem is they can do that again. You know, there's no guarantee that they come back and, and go 8 of 16 tomorrow. And that is the problem. I do think you probably feel pretty safe that Denver's not going to set another franchise record by hitting 22 threes in the next game. You know what else isn't going to happen? Jordan Clarkson isn't going to slip and fall, get up, get away with a push-off, by the way. That was totally an extended forearm. He just got away with it. And then hit a ridiculous three fading away off one leg. That's not happening either. I actually don't know if that's true because he, he does that seemingly <laughs> once every three or four games. I mean, he had another possession. I'm sure you remember. He probably spent 20 seconds on the clock dribbling, and yeah. he did the probe dribble, and then he came back out and then turned mm-hmm. around and spun around and then dribbled back into the paint and did a little thing where he likes to run in. He has a defender's momentum on his hip, and then he kind of stops and turns around and throws in an easy little push shot. I mean, he's, he's really an incredibly skilled offensive player. He might be the Jazz's most skilled offensive player. He's not as effective as Donovan Mitchell, but the number of moves he has just by being in the NBA so long and his kind of weird body type that forces him to do certain things uh, has, has made him develop this kind of weird skill set similar to what you know Nikola Jokic has, an unbelievable skill set, just because his weird body type has forced him to shoot these one-footers. Jordan Clarkson really has a crazy shot-making ability and, and maybe the small or the, the weirdest conscience of anyone on the Jazz who's willing to take a shot like that. The definition of point guard has changed dramatically over the last several years, obviously. But we see Mitchell embracing this role, especially with Conley out. Is that something they should do long term? Yeah, uh, it should be. And it, it's going to make – I'll be curious what types of phone calls the Jazz make this offseason. I don't think you try and move Mike Conley – I don't think it's move Mike Conley at all costs. I think it's silly if you don't kick the tires and see if there's a team out there that feels like they desperately need a point guard, they're willing to shed $30 million off their books, and they want to throw you a couple of first-round draft picks. Because the Jazz right now are a little bit hamstrung in the future if they sign Rudy Gobert and sign Donovan Mitchell and then don't have the number of first-round draft picks that they would like to have because they're going to miss out on next year's because of the Mike Conley trade. They already traded uh, – Grayson Allen last year, and that's a young player that they don't have. You know, they traded a guy like Torian Prince, who would probably still be on this roster when they went out and got George Hill. So Brandon Clark, who's playing for the Memphis Grizzlies, who's so good, they lost him uh, this year in that trade, or Darius Baisley actually ended up being the pick, but that got traded. So they are lacking young first-round talent on contracts that they control for seven years. And if you don't have that, it gets really hard to become a championship contender, because every good team hits randomly on a guy in the 20s or in the 30s, I know that's the second round, but has one of those guys that comes in and contribute. And it's why Oklahoma City is interesting because they went out and got a guy like Luke Dort who was unsigned and undrafted and turned him into a really good player. And so if you don't have that, there's really strong potential for you to struggle. And the Jazz don't have those draft picks other than the 23rd pick now coming up this season. You almost guaranteed you have to hit on that. And by having so few swings at the plate, you really limit your opportunity, I think, to have that success. So I think it would be smart for the Jazz to kick the tires, see if there's anybody out there who wants to take on Mike Conley at $30 million, and see if it makes sense. And certainly there's no gun to your head. You don't have to do it. But if there's the right situation, the right move, or someone just wants to get out of a little bit of a longer contract, at that type of money, it might be helpful. I, I get everything you said there, but the two things I'd say, one is, 
uh, I thought the Jet, I thought Conley was playing pretty well. Well, no, not pretty well. I think he was playing very well the last 12 games before everything stopped, and I thought he played well in the bubble until he left. So it's kind of like you've invested all this time getting him up to speed and comfortable scheme, surroundings, teammate, all that. Now it's time to cash in on it. So, if the, I mean, if the deal's a home run, you know, you always upgrade. But it, it better be really good because they've invested a lot here, and it seems like they've finally gotten to a good place. Yeah, I agree. I don't think you do it just because you feel like you have to. I'm also a fan of teams that are smart and play the cards that they're dealt and don't say, well, we made this one decision and now we're going to see that through regardless. And I think smart teams in the past have traditionally done that type of thing. And it doesn't always work out, and it's certainly not a perfect model. But I do think one of the cards are being played right now, and I don't think it's hard to see. I think it's really fair to say Donovan Mitchell is better playing that position. And I know the Jazz stretch of basketball was against not great opponents from December 4th when Mike Conley got hurt right before the Lakers game and January 16th when he came back. I think that was New Orleans Pelicans. Uh, I don't think you can look at Donovan Mitchell there and say, no, that's not his best version because he did it last year too. When Ricky Rubio got hurt and Dante Exum got hurt and Howell Neto got hurt and Donovan Mitchell had to take over a point guard in January – and all of a sudden the Jazz were fantastic again and went, whatever, 10-3 and three or 18-4. Or and four. They've gone on these crazy runs back-to-back, and then he is 57 against the Nuggets in the playoffs, and you just think, huh. And you know what the other problem is, ultimately, and I think it's a major issue, is how small that backcourt is with Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell, where if you put Donovan at the one and you can go get a guy who's, look at, you know, Six, Corey seven. Craig, who I know was not great last night, but Torrey Craig last night uh, or throughout the season is six. Five, six, six. He, I mean, maybe six, four. But he's much bigger. He can defend most positions uh, in the backcourt. I think the Jazz might need a guy like that more importantly than they do necessarily a Mike Conley. Do you think there's a reluctance by Jazz management to put Donovan there? I don't think so. I think there might have been before now. I would be surprised if they were afraid to do it. I mean, at the latest, you're probably doing it after next season if you keep Mike Conley around and he expires and maybe you even resign Mike Conley so so maybe at the moot point but I, I I don't think there's going to be the hesitancy to do it now because of how well he's played and because his passing has gotten so much better and it was interesting to hear him and DJ to go back to your point of guys looking better and doing mm-hmm. homework and how they use this time Donovan Mitchell a few times you know, during the practices from late June to through July, really, just said, I'm just working on my passing. I'm working on my vision. I want to get better. And I feel like I'm not seeing three times a game, two times a game, Rudy Gobert standing under the paint with his arms up saying, where's the ball? Why am I not catching the ball right now? It feels like Donovan Mitchell's always delivering on that pass and finding shooters and recording what he have seven assists last night. I, I think you're seeing those types of things more commonly from him that makes him look like a more of a modern point guard. So on your point as far as draft picks, uh, yes, you have to have inexpensive players in your rotation because you can't afford to pay everybody in your rotation. So the question is, any of these second-round picks, and I get the rules on them hitting free agency are different and can be problematic, but nonetheless, do you think they have inexpensive young talent in these guys that we've started to see in the bubble? Uh, and, and pick your favorite guy. I don't know if you like Morgan. I don't know if you like Mieoni, but whoever. Yeah, it's probably a little bit of what have you done for me lately because a couple of days ago you probably would have said Jarrell Brantley and then after what Juan Morgan did last night, you really see, oh, that that makes sense. And if that's a guy who can hit a corner three and then rebound as well as he did, 
Well, the new 3 and D player isn't Royce O'Neal because every team has that guy. It's not like that's a unique thing to have. I mean, Denver has four of those guys. Oklahoma City has four of those guys. It is this kind of power forward who rebounds and shoots threes. And it's not, you know, we used to talk about kind of these finesse big men that shoot threes, and, and they're still all over the league. And just the next development is that you have to be better than that. And so the next development is, okay, he plays really good defense. Now, Boyan Bogdanovich is such a good offensive player that he's not a great defender, but he's so good offensively, he's not going to get replaced by a guy like Juwan Morgan. But some of these guys like Nemanja Bialica, who plays in Sacramento, who can't play any defense at all. Nicola Melli, who plays in New Orleans, who can't play any defense at all. Juwan Morgan, all of a sudden, if he can hit 40% on corner threes and then actually rebounds and plays a lot of defense and isn't getting four rebounds a night, is getting seven and eight, that's the next change in what this NBA cycle looks like. And they can guard two through five. And that's what's going to be really interesting, and that's got to be the next development. And I actually think you're seeing it with both Juwan Morgan and Jarrell Brantley. That's who those guys have to be. And uh, Brantley's not a great defensive rebounder yet. Uh, it looks like Juwan Morgan has more skill than that. But me, I think might fit, too. I mean, it's not hard to see. And I think the first time I saw it, you guys remember kind of the big drama midseason was Nieoni and Dante Exum got into a fight, and Dante Exum stormed out of the gym. And I remember looking at that and thinking, like, oh, Nieoni actually has more fight in him than I expected because he frustrated Dante Exum so bad that he left practice. So that's the thing I think you do want to see. And then he's really smart. He moves the ball well. He's not trying to put the ball on the ground, but he can tack a close out. And then he can shoot threes. It's not crazy to think he could be a better player two years from now than Royce O'Neal, just because he has a little bit of a more complete skill set and he's more skilled offensively. So I think they actually do have some young talent. I don't know if any of them are the sixth guy on your roster, and I think that's probably what you need. So I figure you're picking the Nuggets, but are you picking them in four and five and six? What do you think? I don't know if I'm picking the Nuggets yet. I mean, they've beat the Jazz four times in a row, and they keep being in these close games, and clearly they have the Jazz number. So I'm not ready to sink the Jazz quite yet. If they do beat them, I do think it's probably a six- or a seven-game series for Denver because I just don't – I can't imagine the Jazz being in this many close situations and never figuring out what's going wrong late and figuring out how to get over the hump once or twice, or that the Jazz aren't going to have a game where they hit 22 threes, and I know they did that against Denver last Saturday and then went for a, you know, that dead stretch over the fourth quarter over the last six minutes that put the game to double overtime. I have a hard time imagining the Jazz aren't going to win a game just by shooting and then win a game just by the talent they have on the floor. So I think you're going to get two games from that. So I think at the shortest is six. But, man, if Denver keeps playing well, if Jamal Murray's taking this next step, they, they get really hard to beat. Ben, thanks for a few minutes. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you again. All right, guys. Thanks. There's Ben Anderson, Utah Jazz writer for KSLSports.com, and you've heard him on Jazz pre-half and post-game. When we come back, all the headlines, what is trending, coming up.